0: Father, once again, we come to written words, letters on page, on paper, arranged in such a way to convey thoughts in human language. But we, we come to hear something more than just human words. We, we come to hear you speak through your word in the written word, revealing to us the living word, Jesus and as we as we walk along with one of his disciples, so intimately engaged with the events of jesus' life here on earth, Lord we ask that we would see him better in these words, that we would know him a little bit better, we would walk with him a little closer, understand ourselves through his eyes, and see God. Um, through his eyes knowing ourselves and god and the gospel and the church and one another better because we know jesus give us clarity of thought give us um, spiritual ears help us to connect what happened so long ago with what is happening now that we might be the church of jesus christ We pray this all in his precious name, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. The first four chapters, as I mentioned, the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel are essentially a narrative introduction to Jesus' teaching. And Matthew will alternate between narratives about Jesus and long sections of Jesus' actually teaching. Um, and these, these narrative pieces, they often will set up the the discourse the sermon and so as we get ready to approach uh, the Sermon on the Mount which is in Matthew 5 through 7 we're really in the last pieces of the setup so just review and if you haven't been with us I wanna uh, kinda give you the breakdown of this in Matthew 1 through 4 we are setting up Matthew is setting up for us all of Jesus's qualifications to be the king of Israel Um, To be the king after David. David was kind of the template for the king and so Jesus is known as the son of David. Um, But the king is also going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of Israel. Um, And he is going to be the fulfillment of all that came before in biblical history. And Matthew structures his gospel especially this narrative to set us up in that path he first talks about Jesus's descent from the son of from David and how he's descended um, and how Joseph adopts Jesus um, by giving him his name he makes him his son legally although Jesus uh, Joseph is not Jesus's physical father Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit Um, In Mary's virgin womb, but Joseph makes him his son, adopts him fulfills the righteousness of that. And then uh, Jesus is declared to be um, something special, the king of the Jews by the arrival of the Magi from the east. They see a star in the sky, which is a symbol of a birth of a king. They come to see the king. Herod Herod the Great tries his best to frustrate God's agenda. God spares Jesus repeatedly through angelic appearances. Um, uh, and, uh, and then in chapter 3, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the arrival of this Messiah. In fact, the scripture that Matthew quotes in John chapter 3 is a scripture pertaining to the arrival of the God of Israel, Yahweh, um, at the end days, at the end time. Makes straight the way um, for, for him. It's talking about the coming of God himself. And so Matthew is setting up implicitly. He's not explicit. He doesn't say Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, but implicitly he is building um, in the thinking of his readers uh, this idea of who Jesus is, the son of David, the king of the Jews, the coming Messiah. And then at the end, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by a voice from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends, a voice from heaven speaks, and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So in chapter 4, we have all this set up, right? Son of David, King of the Jews, Son of God, Chosen One. In chapter 4, Matthew takes a wild left turn. This is all building, right? Building, building, building. This is exciting. And then in chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want to just set up that that. Passage, so you understand before we get too too far, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. the wilderness is the section between the Jordan River and the mountains of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is it is um, we 've been there uh, normally, I would put up a picture here. It looks like the surface of the moon it is It is barren, empty, nothing I mean seriously. Nothing. And when I say nothing, I don't mean like, oh, there aren't a lot of trees. I mean there are no trees. There's nothing green. And we were there in the rainy season, and it was barren. And the bus driver drove off without us to give us an experience of being in the wilderness on our own. And it took 30 seconds for us to go, hey, when is the bus driver coming back? Uh, It it was not cool. It's below below sea level. The atmosphere is heavy. It's a really... Um, it's kind of an alien space. So Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. The word "tempted," the Greek word, uh, we read "tempt." When we read temptation, we always think about sin. We always think about, you know, chocolate. Um, we we think about things that we think about things that oh, I shouldn't do that. You know, that thing. Um, I have this thing about once a year. Uh, And I think I've mentioned this. For the most part, I eat, you know, sort of relatively healthy. But about once a year, I'm just walking through the store and I spy Lucky Charms. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I spy Lucky Charms every time I walk through the store. But for the most part, I can usually avoid eating Lucky Charms because, I mean, let's be honest, there is nothing about the coloration or the look of Lucky Charms that says, this is food. It is the color of playthings. It's the color of the things you're always telling your children not to put in their mouths. And yet, here is Lucky Charms. And it used to be there were just like five charms. Now, like 45 of them, it's like 80% marshmallows and 5% cereal, and then whatever the other percentage is, is all preservatives. So I usually avoid Lucky Charms, but this week I bought. A box of Lucky Charms. Now, here's the funny thing about Lucky Charms. This is—any this is of you guys did noticed notice in the store? I walk in and I go, "Okay, Lucky Charms. Well, all right, I'm—I got to—I got to be careful. I'll buy the little box. How is the little box more expensive than the big box? <laughs> the little box was five dollars. The family size box was four dollars. I was like, "Well, I'll moderate my consumption. <laughs> I mean, I'm eating them out of a salad bowl." I, I can't. I can't help myself. We think of that as temptation. That's not actually what's going on with Jesus in this situation. Uh, the the word, the Greek word for that we usually translate as temptation, it means to test or to try. To and really the the root of temptation is not our giving in, but our ability to endure. All right, that's the root of temptation. The idea of temptation is that if if we truly God is at work in us we should be able to endure the testing it's a it's a word that kind of comes from forging um, if you've ever you've ever messed around with forge I actually have a couple of friends who are blacksmiths um, and they talk about how you, you temper your steel. All right, You can't just use pure iron. You, there's things you have to put into it. There's little additives that you add. It has to be heated to a certain temperature, folded a certain way, cooled a certain way. And then you test it. You want to see how strong it is. You want to see how it can survive. It's always fascinated me. My friends who who actually pay the blacksmiths to make their knives and things, like... I mean, they take their kitchen knife and they could cut a tree down with it. Um, my, cut, my kitchen knives bend if I'm trying to cut a piece of toast because I bought them off of Amazon and they were on sale um, and they are made by some company in, like, you know, Uzbekistan. Anyway, um, so temptation is the testing, it is the proof. You should go through temptation, Jesus goes through temptation, proving that he has the strength that is required to do the job that he's called to do. So that's the meaning of temptation here in this context. Um, And and it's the meaning of temptation in the Bible. The the point of temptation is not that we fail, but that we survive, that we endure, that we pass the test. Um, so the second word that I want to I just mention here, the third word in, in verse 4, is the word devil. Um, now, again, devil is one of those words that we charge with so much meaning. We think of devil, we immediately think horns, red skin, pointy tail, probably hooved things, pitchfork, poking people. That's how we think of a devil. Um, devil is actually a transliteration of the Greek word diabolos. Um, uh, if you speak Spanish, right, diablo all right it's the same word it actually means to throw across to hurl accusations that's actually what the word devil means the accuser the the accusation hurler or we might even call it the examiner the prosecutor the one who executes the test Um, we all really would love to go through life where there are people where the only thing that ever happens when we learn a new skill or a challenge by something is that somebody goes yay you're doing great you're doing wonderful keep going but the reality is there are jobs in the world where you need to have somebody going that was awful do it again how would you feel if your house was on fire and the firemen who arrived had never really been tested Every time they turn the, 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 if the water didn't work, they had their coach went, it's okay, you'll get it next time. No, you want a fireman who has been tested. You want a fireman who's been being yelled at to get that water right. You want them to do the job. No one wants an EMT to show up and go, well, you know, I didn't really pass first aid, but I'm going to give it a shot. But I do have a participation trophy, so... It's important. You want people that are tested. You want an accuser in a situation. You want somebody who challenges you. Uh, When I did my doctoral defense, my second reader did not like me. I thought she was great before, um, (laughs) but she she, she just challenged everything I said. And, and while in the moment, I, she was so frustrating. She was driving me, because my dissertation mentor, uh, Joe Kathy he insist on me calling him Joe now, not Dr. Kathy, which is really upsetting to me. Um, Joe would be like, you're doing great. This is the best thing I've ever read. Keep going. It's fantastic. Keep writing. We'll get this done. And then I got to Dr. Jones, and she was like, no. No. And I'm like, "But but, but why? No. But that challenge ultimately, and this is just a weird anecdote, all right, this week I had a video call with somebody who is entering the dissertation phase in my doctoral program. Um, I do consulting on the side with people that are in the program. He said, hey, he says, I was researching this one topic. Your dissertation came up. It was the greatest thing I've ever read on this topic, and so I had to talk to you. And I had to say to him, well, that's fantastic, but the chapter that you liked was not in there until my second reader just drove me nuts and I had to write this chapter so that I could get through my dissertation phase he's like really I was like yeah you know so the trial the test the accuser their purpose is to test whether you can really handle it or not and that's what that's what the the devil here the the accuser here that's his purpose his purpose here, although his intention probably was try to get Jesus to stumble, in the grander scope of things, his purpose is to be the foil so that Jesus can be proven to be superior. That test that comes through. So, now in verse 2, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The most obvious statement in the entire Bible. Um, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I'm going to set this up so that you understand, kind of can get the vibe that's going on here. Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the King of Israel. And so when the accuser comes, what the accuser is going to do is he is going to use Moses as a template for his accusations and his temptations of Jesus. Now, you say, where do you get that from? Um, well, he says to him, he says, if you're so hungry, make these stones into bread. In Exodus uh, chapter 16, the people of Israel go to Moses in the wilderness By the way, like a couple days After, Jesus just, uh, after God just parted the, the Red Sea And they walked across on dry land And the Egyptian armies got wiped out They're on the other side of that They walk like two days And they go to Moses and they go I'm hungry <laughs> Do we have anything to eat? I'm starving There's no bread We ate all the bread that we brought with us from Israel And now we have nothing Can we stop? Is there something? Can we go somewhere? And now I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this is pretty much the attitude they have. Now, those of you with kids, you know what this is like when there's one or two of them. Imagine what it's like if there's half a million of them. <laughs> All right? Everybody's like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. i got to go to the bathroom. Can I? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. Do we have any bread? I'd like some bread. And when Moses looks around and there's no bread, they go, Oh, we should just go back to Egypt. There was bread there. I am so tired of walking. There was bread back there. We, uh, it was better to die a slave than to not have bread. Now, you have to imagine Moses at this point, having spent 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, going, Really, this is your biggest problem? Your bread, you're out of bread. The, the, ten plagues? Not, a, not an issue. Death of the firstborn? That was cool. Parting the, the Red Sea, that was all right. But no bakery in the wilderness. That's it. Go back to Egypt. Go back to sla- be slaves. And so in Exodus 16, God sends the manna. Now, manna, by the way, the Hebrew word manna is an, a, an exclamation. It means, what is this? that's actually what the hebrew word means which i think is fantastic um it was like every morning they would go out and they would gather bread off the floor off the ground and go well what's for dinner i don't know what it is but here and god provides bread for them and then when they were thirsty what does god do god says to moses you go hit the rock you go speak to the rock and water will flow forth so now the accuser comes to jesus he said well you know moses Moses was just a servant of God, and he provided bread. God provided bread. You're supposed to be the son of God. Shouldn't you be able to just turn the stones into bread? If you're you're so great, Jesus, and you're so hungry, just go ahead and turn the the stones into bread. And what does Jesus say in verse 4? Jesus answered, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight. I'm going to turn over there um, because whenever there's a quote in the Gospels, you need to read the context. All right. Probably what Jesus actually did was quote all of Deuteronomy. You know, Matthew just or Deuteronomy eight. G- Matthew only includes a little bit um, about it when he cites it, but um, he's reading from he's quoting from Deuteronomy eight three. Uh, He humbled you. This is Moses speaking to Israel. He humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear on you. Your foot did not swell. Boy, that would be awesome. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, The Lord your God disciplines you, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. See, the first temptation, the first test, is a a test of provision. And, And the devil, the accuser, he says to Jesus, he says, you're hungry now? Just go ahead and make stones into bread. You're better than Moses. You can do it. And Jesus says, no. It's not about what I'm capable of doing. It's about who I'm called to follow. God said I should be, the Father said I should be in here for 40 days, hungry and thirsty. He will provide at the end of the temptation, I'm going to obey rather than satisfy. This situation... um, the test that Israel failed two days after the Red Sea, three days, whatever it was, after the Red Sea, the test that they failed was that they could not see beyond the momentary hunger for the greater cause of what God was doing in their lives. Over and over and over again, actually, Israel gets right to the edge of God providing extraordinary things for them. And in the moment they beg for something and God gives them less than what they could have had if they would have just endured and obeyed His commandments. Let's move on. The second test. The devil took him to the holy city, takes him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down. Now he listened to the way that Jesus answered to him. Answered him. So the devil goes, well, I know the Bible too. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting uh, Psalm ninety-one verses eleven and twelve. Um, he says to Jesus, he says, okay, all right, so, all right, the test of provision, good, you passed that. I meant for you to pass that test. So now let me put you in a different situation. Let's go up on the pinnacle of the temple. This, by the way, is a little tower on the wall of the temple where um, they would go to look at the stars to know, ironically, when the new moon happens, so they could schedule Passover, the exact kind of scheduling that we deal with with Resurrection Sunday. All right, so they would see the new moon. It has to do with the first new moon after the the spring uh, solstice and or the winter equinox. And don't don't worry about it. Um, anyway, they would go up there and they look and say, hey. And it was it was also by the way, um, they had a lunar calendar. So a lunar calendar is not 30 days, right? So their calendar would get off. And this was the most brilliant thing I think I've ever encountered in the ancient world, right? So if they looked up and the new moon was the wrong, they would just announce a second last month. They're like, no, no, it's not, it's not month one again. It's month twelve, one more time. All right. It's like, like how do, you, like it's bad enough when the year changes and we have to write a check and we write the l- wrong year. Can you imagine, like, oh no, 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 second last month. Yeah, yeah, second last month. All right. Um, thankfully, solar calendars we don't have to worry about that. Um, but lunar calendars, that kind of stuff happens because if you don't, suddenly the fall is the spring and the spring is the fall and everything's confusing and birthday parties don't make any sense. So. He he takes him out of the tower and he says, all right, guys, he says, Jesus, he says, if you, if you just throw yourself down, the Bible says, have you ever heard somebody use this argument? But the Bible says that God will, he'll send the angels and they'll actually pick you up and you'll, you'll flutter to the ground. He says, so why don't you do this? This is the test. It's a. It's the. This is the test of protect, protection. The first one was the test of provision. The second one is the test of protection. He says to, to him, he says, God won't let anything happen to you. Now, what does Jesus respond? Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, we don't get to just say, well, God will take care of it. And do stupid things, <laughs> right? I mean, this is just like, oh, well, God will take care of it. I can just do something dumb. I can do something that doesn't make any sense because God will take care of it. God will take care of it. You know, um, you know, I, I, I and, and I'm not, I'm not knocking, you know, kind of. Alternate medicine or anything like that. I don't don't take this the wrong way, um, but I had a friend had a a, a a cancer diagnosis and they kind of explained the situation and the treatment and stuff and, and people make their decisions based on that and and you have to make your own choices. His decision was well I know this is a pretty severe cancer he says but you know um, this is oh you know it's always a problem. I was reading on the internet. And it said that if you just, if you drink grape seed extract, um, it will reduce tumors. And so I'm just going to do that. And and I'm going to pray, right? Because if I pray, God will make it go away. And you can imagine what happened. All right. God... God protects us when we do stupid things, but we shouldn't be doing stupid things to check and see if God's going to protect us. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know that this sounds like it should be common sense, but every once in a while, I have to sit down with somebody and say, could you stop doing dumb things? I just stopped doing dumb things. Um, you know, we, we uh, uh, this this is a, a little side story, but you know most of you know that Tom Hafcoat and I grew up together. He has a younger brother, Bob. Um, Bob used to, and I'm not exaggerating. Tom will will back me up on this. Among the things that Bob would do, uh, Bob would run head first into fences, um, and he would hit himself in the head with baseball baseballs. Right? Am I wrong? Right? That's what he would do, and then he would go, "Wow, my head hurts." Really, Bob, your head hurts. You hit yourself in the head with a hard ball. You think that that might, that might have something to do with it? You know your Uncle Bob. All right? Um, you think that might... And, and then he would do it again. You sit there and you go, Hey, you know, just a piece of advice. Stop doing dumb things. Your head, headache will go away if you stop hitting yourself in the head with hard balls. Now, we, you know, we look at that and go, Oh, that's, that's weird. But don't we do that? Don't we do that? Oh, I suffer from lust of the eyes. I see a woman, and you know, it's just I, so I'm going to the beach. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Like, like, I, I get it, there's challenges and stuff, but Jesus says, we don't test God. Now I want to I want to just hit first of all, I want to look at where the devil's quoting from. Alright? Because true to his type. This will come as a, no surprise to most of you. The devil takes the Bible out of context. Verses 11 to 12 is where he quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, all that stuff. Verse 13 is even a better one. You would have thought he would have set this one up because verse 13 says, you will tread on the lion and the adder and the lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. I mean, I wonder why the devil didn't do that one. He's like, Jesus, see that lion? You want to step on his foot and see what happens? He doesn't do that with Jesus. But look in verse 14. Because he, so this is talking about the faithful man. He, the faithful man, holds fast to me, God, in love, I will deliver him. Because he holds fast to me, I will deliver him. God says, God says, my angels will bear you up, I will protect you because you hold fast to me. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Does that sound like a promise that we should be doing stupid things to test? Well, God said he's going to take care of me, so I'm going to rely on being stupid, hoping that God will bail me out. And Jesus says, Jesus says, Satan, He goes, no, don't test God. God's promises. If you don't get anything else this morning, write this down. God's promises aren't toys for us to play with. God's promises aren't toys for us to play with. When I see a tele-evangelist, any one of those wackos, Telling people that if you give them $100, God will automatically give them back, give you back 100000 He will multiply it. You just give us the seed. Anytime you hear a preacher on TV say that you need to give us the seed, run the other way. They are trying to get your money falsely promising and speaking for God that he will do something that God never said there was a guarantee he would do. Trust me. If it worked that way The cryptocurrency people would be giving money To the televangelists God's promises aren't toys For us to play with God's grace protects us But we do not get to walk around going I'm special because I have grace I can do stupid things Test number three Test number three The devil, in verse 8, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I love, by the way, that Satan's entire scriptural exegesis consisted of quoting two verses out of context in the middle of his argument. He just goes right back to... And what is he doing here? Well, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 38... God takes Moses up on Mount Nebo and he shows him the promised land. And he says to Moses, you can't go in. You have to die here because of your sin. You can't go on. Now Moses was 120 years old. So that probably wasn't that big of a deal. He didn't really want to start life again, conquering the Canaanites at 120 years, 120 years old. Jesus, God shows him all the promised land, but you're not going to go in. Joshua's going to lead the people in. And Moses dies on that mountain. Nobody knows where he was buried. There's all kinds of legends about this. He dies on that mountain. Well, here's the situation where the devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain. He doesn't just show him the promised land. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, Moses had to die, not coming into the promised land. But Jesus, if you just bow down to me, you can live and you can rule all of this. You can be better than Moses. God killed Moses. You get to live. Now, it's ironic, I think, that... For some reason, the devil doesn't register that the guy that took Moses' place, his name was Yeshua, which is what Jesus' name is. So Jesus still conquered the promised land in the Old Testament. He takes him up a mountain. He says, hey, I could give you this. You don't have to die. Make no mistake about it. Satan knows what God's doing. He knows the strategy with Jesus. Jesus. And and the devil says to him, Hey, I could give you all of this. And in verse ten, then Jesus said to him, Get out of here. Get out. Now we read, "Begone, Satan." It's like it's like you know you have to read that in um, uh, 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 Captain Picard's voice, right? Uh, what what's the actor's name? Patrick. Patrick Stewart. You know, "Be gone Satan" or even better for the for the older folks in the crowd, uh Charlton Heston's voice, right? Um, uh, or Yule Brenner. Yule Brenner's awesome too. I am the morning star. Anyway, um "Be gone Satan." He says, "Get out of here. Get out of here with this weak argument. This is your this is the best you can do is to offer me the kingdoms of the world? Don't you know who I am i already hold the hearts of the king in my hand he says to him he says you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve now i'm going to tell you something about this line i do not think jesus is making an argument proving why he doesn't have to bow to the devil he's saying to the devil you bow I don't bow to you. You shall serve the Lord your God. And him alone shall you serve. And the devil goes, I am out of here. The devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now don't miss that moment in Matthew. What was the central argument that the devil made. He said, The angels will take care of you. You'd fall up, jump off this pinnacle. The angels are literally sitting at the edge of this conversation, waiting for the devil to leave to come and minister to Jesus. There, instantaneously there. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 You shall worship the Lord your God. He stands up. Who else could stand up to the devil like this except the Lord himself? This is the proof that the king who is arriving has arrived. He has met the test of, the, of his kingship. He has met the test of his rule. He has met the test now of his power and his victory over the accuser. He has passed all of the tests that are being presented to him. And we are meant to, when we read this, contrast Jesus with Israel going through the wilderness. That's why the gospel writers all make sure that they use the same word for wilderness to describe the wilderness that Israel was going through. There are a lot of parallels here. Israel failed all three tests, the provision test, the protection test, and the third one is the position test. Israel failed all three. Israel whined about food. Israel whined about God not protecting them. Israel whined about whether God was really their God or not. And they went off and worshipped a golden calf, gave it his name. Repeatedly Israel failed because as Moses was a prophet or a messenger of God in the wilderness, the wilderness showed our failure before God. Our inevitable failure before God in the wilderness. And, and we, we all go through wildernesses, right? It is easy to love God when everything is in alignment. It is easy to serve God when the, the checkbook always balances and there's always more money than you need. And if there is, you probably haven't been grocery shopping recently. It's always easy to follow God when everything lines up. It's always easy to follow God when everything is working out. When you you still feel, you know, it's easy to it's easy to love your spouse when you still get giddy every time you see them and you still think they're super handsome and extraordinary and all that stuff. And um, it's not easy to to love them when they start to get really really down and dumped and messed up or they say the wrong things all the time and I speak from experience not being the one who's hard to love not the one um, loving my wife has to deal with me and my weird eccentricities and all that stuff and somehow she still loves me and why does she still love me it's not because I'm necessarily super lovable it's because she loves the one who endured the wilderness See, we fail before the law. We fail before righteousness. We fail the test. The wilderness is the place where God's people fail to maintain righteousness on their own. And Jesus goes through the wilderness to demonstrate his own righteousness and his own power and his own authority and his own place and position, his provision and his protection upon us to see that we don't have to live in the wilderness constantly worried about our failure to abide by the law, but we can live in the fulfillment of Jesus and his grace. Same wilderness, same wilderness, different leader. Moses led people and they failed. They struggled. Now, by the way, just as an aside, we only get the moments that they fail. Um, I have to assume there were a lot of moments when they didn't. So, so we tend to read Exodus through Deuteronomy. We're like, man, all these people ever do is mess up. Remember, they were there for 40 years, and that's all we've got for their failures. So I'm assuming they did pretty good a lot of the time, but they made mistakes. But the wilderness is where we fail before the law. We fail. But Jesus is going to succeed. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness and then proceeds to preach that the kingdom has arrived. Why? I want to end with this. Why does Jesus stand out from all of the other teachers of this time period? Why are his followers so willing to go to their deaths in his name? Every argument about Jesus not being historically the Messiah and raised from the dead and all that stuff, n- none of those arguments can ever answer the question, why did people who lived and walked and breathed and heard Jesus go to their death defending him if he wasn't who he says He was. If they weren't the people, and listen, you need to understand that this is real people in the real world, and if you're Matthew, if you're Levi, if you're the tax collector in Galilee, and Jesus shows up, and there's a bunch of people saying, this is the guy who stood down Satan. This is the guy who raises the dead. This is the guy who heals lepers. This is the guy who does this, and then you see him do it then yeah, you're willing to die for him. But if it's just a myth, if it's just a figment, collective figment of the imagination, who dies for that? Who, who goes to, the, to, the, to martyrdom for that? One of the great testimonies that Jesus is who the gospel portrays is that his followers were unwilling to compromise in following him. People who lived in They lived simultaneously with him. Not not some myth, not some legend. They walked with him. They saw him do these things. They heard about this. Listen, somebody who stands up Satan, somebody who can pass that test in the wilderness, I might be inclined to listen to him. I might be inclined to listen to a guy who when I bring a paralyzed person to him, he touches him and his legs come back to life and he goes off. I might be inclined to listen to somebody who touches the eyes of the blind. I might be inclined to listen to somebody who manages to heal somebody he doesn't even see. There's a moment where there's a woman that just reaches out and just touches him as he's walking through a crowd and he heals her and then simultaneously heals somebody at a distance. I might be inclined to listen to that guy. I might be inclined to listen to Jesus when he finally arrives in Jerusalem and in his procession as he enters Jerusalem are blind beggars that everybody knew on the road of Jericho and now they can see. Uh, on the ro- in his procession is Lazarus who everybody knows is dead and yet somehow is alive. In his procession is Mary Magdalene who was possessed of demons and everyone knew she was and yet here she comes. In his procession is a Gentile demoniac from the east side of the Jordan River that Jesus cast out devils and and, and spirits that were making him live in tombs and wound himself and now he's of his right mind and he's preaching the gospel. In his procession is a Samaritan woman who had been married seven times but she had come to faith and now she was preaching the gospel. In his procession are all these people his lives lives he's changed and he's the guy who stood up to Satan worth following worth following what the crazy thing is in the gospel of John I don't want to get into it too deep but in the gospel of John Jesus says and you guys believe because you see imagine how much faith it's going to take of those who come after you who have to believe having not seen And he was talking about us. All we have is this witness of the gospel. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. If he is one one hundredth of the person who stands up to Satan here. He's worth following. He's worth giving our lives for. I 100% believe and preachers always preachers are known for saying things they don't necessarily agree with i think one of the hardest things sometimes people have to deal with is that i i just say what i think i 100% believe that the jesus of the gospels is god the son the Son of God, the third member of the Trinity, the Savior of the world. I believe He stood up to Satan. I believe He healed. I believe He called us to true righteousness. I believe He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I believe that He is coming again. I believe that He is the victor over death. I believe that He is King of kings and Sovereign of sovereigns, uh, God above God. And it's enough that He is this person. I'd rather follow the guy who stood up to Satan and called us to worship and serve and pass the tests than some idea or some principle or some myth. Jesus goes into the wilderness to demonstrate his superiority to all that had come before him so that all who follow him might be saved. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, there are so many barriers in our world to accepting... Accepting you as you are presented in the Gospels. So many reasons, so many ideas, so many competing values, so many arguments. Help us to believe. Help us to walk in belief in the one who is victor over death, who passed the test, who fulfilled the law, who went and did what no one ever born could ever do no one uh, not one of us man woman or child is capable of to become the righteousness of the law to become life out of death to stand as God the son and the son of God and in your resurrection Jesus we live and we breathe and we move We place our faith and trust in you as individuals and as the church. Jesus, it is in your name we have gathered. It is in your name we go to do the work you have called us to do. And so we pray. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and